Welcome to the King's Word Bible Study. Today our topic is going to be Responding to Hard Times. Let's begin today in Leviticus chapter 10. In Leviticus chapter 10, beginning in the first verse, it says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them as censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified, and then that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphim, the sons of Uzziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said unto them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near, and carried them in their coasts out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said unto Aaron, and unto Elzar, and unto Ephemar his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, and lest wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord have kindled. And ye shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you, and they did according to the word of Moses. We find here that both of Aaron's sons broke the commandment of the Lord, and died as a consequence of that. But we have to look at this from Aaron's perspective too. This happened suddenly to Aaron. He had no premonition that this was coming. There was no prophecy given concerning it. No man of God told him this was to be. It just happened. That's not to say that it happened needlessly or without cause. They transgressed against the Lord and received a just punishment for doing so. What happened was perfectly right. But still to Aaron, it happened suddenly. This must have shocked him, must have surprised him, and it must have seemed to even be random. Sometimes this is how bad things in life seem to work. We've all experienced our fair share of trials and hard times, and some of them seemingly come out of nowhere. Maybe it's not as bad as the loss of a child, but even things that others may think are trivial can really be hard trials for us. Sometimes they surprise us, sometimes we're really caught off guard, but they happen nevertheless. So what do we do during those times? How should we as the people of God respond to the bad times that arise in our life? Aaron's response is very telling, as is everyone's response to bad things. Your reaction is highly indicative of the strength of your faith and the strength of your relationship with God. Weak faith leads to a weak response, while on the other hand, strong faith leads to a strong response. It's proportional. Verse 3 told us, Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The key phrase here is that he held his peace. What does that mean? What does that look like? And how can we do that in our own life? The first thing we have to note is that Aaron suffered no small loss here. Although it was perfectly just punishment for his sons, Aaron still lost two of his children at the same time. That's a hard pill to swallow. If that occurred to most people, they'd have a very different reaction than that of holding their peace. Most people get emotional, which is definitely understandable, but then they allow those emotions to go too far. They allow their feelings and their emotions to lead them to act irrationally. They allow themselves to get angry and bitter and resentful. They allow it to foster hatred in their heart, and that hatred is usually directed towards God. They take grief, which taken on its own merit is a necessary, natural, and normal feeling and process, and they exaggerate it to the point where it becomes an oppressing spirit that the enemy uses to attempt to control their faults and their actions. Emotions aren't bad. They're good. We need them. But they shouldn't be the sole directors of our actions. 
That's dangerous because that means that there's no checks and balances. There's no rationality, no thought process to warn us when our emotions have gone too far and are out of control. We've all seen people who, when confronted with a bad or stressful situation, act rashly and say things that they don't really mean and do things that they would never normally do. But that's not something that we can just look past as a choice made in the heat of the moment. Because an action is never something that can be viewed alone. There's always something behind it. And when it comes to people acting rashly when something bad happens, especially Christians, it belies that there's an absence of peace within them. Aaron held his peace. That's not what these people do, though. They don't hold on to it. They let it go. They let it slip through their fingers. They let the enemy steal it from them. The enemy is always after your peace and will quickly seize any opportunity to take it from you. Bad situations and trying times provide fertile soil for one of those opportunities to arise, which is why we had to be aware of our peace just like Aaron was. Aaron held it. Holding is a verb. It's an action. It's something that we had to consciously and knowingly do. We have to take hold of it and refuse to let go. We have to latch on and hold tight. We have to take what's ours and refuse to hand it over to the enemy under any circumstances. It's hard when we endure trials to keep our peace because we're under attack. We get weary. We get tired. We feel like we're losing our strength. And it's during these times that we find so many people relax their hold on their peace just long enough for the enemy to snatch it from them. People lose their peace when they start to let anxiety and worry get a foothold in their life. They start to panic when things take a turn for the worse. They start to expect the worst case scenario, start to see everything in a bad light. And what that does if left unchecked is it causes a breach of their trust in God, which directly leads to a lack of peace. Isaiah 26 and 3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. The key phrase there is because he trusts. Peace is predicated on trust. We're free to have peace because we trust in His provision, His sustaining power, and the goodness and the righteousness of His will. Aaron held his peace because he held his trust in God. Even though something terrible suddenly came upon him, he knew that God didn't change. He knew that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The phrase held his peace in the Greek also means to grow dumb or silent, which means that he was resting in God. He was submitting himself to the Lord and to His will. He wasn't trying to force his will or voice his objections to what the Lord had done. He was at peace with what occurred because he was submitted, which is what we're all called to be. If we're not totally surrendered to God and to his will, we will lose peace when bad things occur. It's inevitable. But when we give our life, our burdens, and our future into his hands, we always will have peace. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 3. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, beginning in the 10th verse, it says, and the Lord came and stood, and called us at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. And Samuel lay until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, Here am I. And he said, What is the thing that the Lord have said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to thee and more also if thou hide anything from me of all the things that he said unto thee. 
And Samuel told him every whit, and did nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. Here we find a similar account to what we saw with Aaron earlier. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had flagrantly went against the Lord's command, and for that the Lord required their lives. Eli lost both of his sons in one day. One major difference in the account of Eli is that in chapter 2, a man of God prophesied to Eli and said in verse 34, And this shall be a sign unto thee, that shall come upon thy two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, and one day they shall die both of them. Even with the foreknowledge of this coming day, that doesn't take away from the sorrow of it actually coming to pass. For some people, and in some cases, it can even make it worse, because now they have time to dwell on it and despair of its coming. We know that if this happened to many people today, it would break them, it would break their resolve, break their heart, and maybe even break their will to go on. But we find a unique response from Eli. His response stands out, just like Aaron's did. Verse 18 told us, And Samuel told him every whit, and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. This is an interesting phrase. This represents submission to the Lord and to his will, just like we found with Aaron. This is the opposite of what most people would say if they found themselves in the same situation. Their mindset is what the Lord do it seems good to me, because they want their own wants, their own desires to be fulfilled, and they want God's will to be taken care of secondarily, if at all. This is the age-old pattern, a man's will trying to subvert and take the place of God's will. But Eli didn't follow that pattern. He let God's will have its rightful place, which is what we need to do too. He, being a father, didn't want his children to die. But he knew that the Lord's wisdom far surpassed his own. He knew as Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 to 9 tell us, For my faults are not your faults, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my faults than your faults. The other thing we need to note about this verse is that it said, What seemeth him good? We have to ask, What does seem good to God? We know that he always has our best interests at heart, and that he delights to do us good. Romans 8 and 28 tells us, And we know that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. God takes even the worst things that happen to us, the hardest, toughest situations, and uses them for our good. Knowing that, it's far easier to submit to His will. How could we not? We all know from experience that there are plenty of times when we thought we wanted something, and maybe we desired it more than anything else, only to get it and realize that that's really not what we wanted. God knows this inclination of the human heart, and this is why it seems to so many like God's not in control, or that He's not working things out in our best interests, or that He's willing for evil to come upon us, when in reality, none of these things are true. What happens is always ultimately for our good, even if the moment itself isn't good. The good just didn't come in the way or at the time that we expected it to. In the moment, it may be hard to see His hand in it. But when we take a step back and look at the bigger picture, we'll see his hand directing us towards our true desires, towards what he willed for us. This comes down to perspective. We have to change how we look at the trials that we go through. It's easy to take the pessimistic route that tells us that things are getting worse and that they'll never get better. But we have to stand on God's word, that even during the worst of times, the best is yet to come. When we serve a good God, there's always good on the way. That doesn't mean it'll be immediate. Sometimes it's at the end of a long, hard road, but it is there, and it is coming. Earlier, when we looked at Isaiah 26 and 3, the first half told us, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. 
We fix our perspective by keeping our mind, our thoughts, our focus on God, looking to Him and not to the situations around us. When we, like Peter, look at Jesus and not the storm raging in our life all around us, we will stay afloat. We will make it through intact. But it's when we start looking anywhere and everywhere else that we start to sink. We have to keep our mind stayed on God. We have to meditate on His Word and rehearse His will for our life in our hearts. We have to know and speak to ourselves that He works all things together for our good. And in that way, when the bad times and seasons of life do arrive, as they always will, even if they happen suddenly, we won't be caught off guard, we'll know what to do, we'll be prepared, and we'll be able to reassure ourselves that even this trial, no matter how bad it may seem to be in the natural, is ultimately for our good. And it's in this way that we can say with Eli, It is the Lord, let him do what seemeth him good. Let's go to Job chapter 1. In Job chapter 1, beginning in the 13th verse, it says, And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job, and said the oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them, and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven, and it burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out free bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and the slain servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return tither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Here we find Job's encounter. He too, like Aaron and Eli, lost his children. And he arguably suffered the worst and most comprehensive loss of all. He lost all ten of his children at the same time. Not to mention his property, his wealth, and his stock animals. You'd have a hard time finding a man who suffered more than Job. But even he didn't react like most people would. He didn't give up on life, fall into despair, and curse God, even when his wife suggested that he should. He didn't throw in the towel and resort to living in misery and bitterness. He didn't turn his back on God and the world and sulk in self-pity for the rest of his days. He had a unique reaction too. And just like with the others, when trials come upon us as they invariably will, we should react the same way that he did. So what exactly did Job do? Verse 20 said, then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He worshipped God. That's the direct opposite of what the natural carnal mind tells us to do. But yet Job pushed past that part of him, and he worshipped in spite of the pain, in spite of the loss, and in spite of the grief. He called out to God and praised Him. He thanked Him and glorified Him. That's hard for a man in Job's position to do. There's nothing easy about that. And that was the first thing that he did, which shows the strength of his relationship with the Lord. Psalm 34 and 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. The key phrases here are at all times and continually. This is how we should worship 
at all times. Worship even when everything's going wrong, even when things can't seem to get any worse, even when it seems like there's no way that we could ever escape or make it through the bed. We should still worship, because just like Israel, when the choir went out before it praising and worshiping, the victory was ensured. It works the same way in our lives. There's countless battles and trials that will afflict us throughout this life. They're unavoidable. They're going to happen. But when we take the time to worship like Job did, even in the face of these things, we will be victorious. We will make it through. And we'll find that we're stronger, better, and wiser for having gone through them. Worship always precedes victory, which is why it's so important that we worship together. When we join our voices in worship as a company of praise, as a family of God, our victory only becomes that much greater, that much more comprehensive, and that much more compelling as a means to draw others to God. Worship is a far more powerful tool in our spiritual warfare than most Christians ever realize, and we can't underestimate its power because things in the natural seem to be bad or are getting worse. We need to look beyond what the natural eye can see, and we need to see the same loving God that's watching over us during the good and the bad times. We also find in the account of Job something that he didn't do, but that we find many people today are all too quick to do. Verse 22 told us, In all this Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. There's a popular mindset prevalent in the church today, mainly because of people not being taught the truth, that God owes them. Most Christians would never admit to adhering to this mindset, but you can tell in their actions that they believe it. But how do you tell when someone thinks that? The easiest and the most common way to tell is when something bad happens to them and they immediately say, but I paid my tithe, but I went to church every Sunday, but I sang in the choir every week, but I was an usher, but I played an instrument in the church, or any other similar type of thing. What people are doing here is that they're trying to appeal to some service that they feel that they rendered to God. And implicitly, they're saying that they feel that they need to be compensated for what they did, which compensation would come in the form of good happening to them. This is dangerous for obvious reasons. This means that they're really trying to pay off God, to buy good from Him, which makes this transactional, which goes directly against the agape love, which is freely given and unconditional. And we know that God is agape love personified. This way of thinking is purely conditional. It's not free at all. It's transactional in every way. The worst part of this is that when something bad happens, not only do they feel like they weren't compensated, they're in effect accusing God of being unjust or even unrighteous because they're saying that He didn't keep His end of the bargain, even though God never entered any such deal with them. God doesn't owe us anything. All good that we receive from Him is a byproduct of His love and grace for us, the same love and grace that we don't deserve but receive anyway. We owe Him more than we could ever pay. We owe Him our all, our everything, our life itself. We owe a debt that we can never repay. But the same way that God doesn't charge us for that debt, we shouldn't then turn around and try to exact from Him every penny of good that we falsely feel that He owes us. That's beyond foolish and only portrays the fact that we understand almost nothing about what God's done for us and the covenant that we made with Him. God is never unjust and He's never unrighteous. That's an impossibility. But when we get caught up in our emotions, sometimes we'll say something foolish like that, which is why we have to be vigilant, why we have to watch how we respond. The enemy knows that when something bad happens, when we come upon a trial in our life, that we have the potential to say and do things that we'll regret later on, and he tries to capitalize on that as much as he can, mainly through suggesting to us that we act rashly or without thought. He tries to tell us that we should be mad at God, and then helps to foment that anger and resentment in our life 
which doesn't stop just at God, but then spills over into our interactions with others too. We have to be watchful. We can't let ourselves fall into this mindset, no matter how attractive it may seem to be in the moment to the carnal mind. We have to keep our mind and our focus stayed on God. We need to learn from Aaron, Eli, and Job. Although these men lived at vastly different times and even in different places, they all shared similar situations, and they all responded in the right way, in a way that honored and glorified God. Every time something bad happens, there's a chance to do the right thing, to honor God, or there's also an opportunity to do the opposite and dishonor God by reacting in a natural, carnal way, in a way that emphasizes man over God. God is a sovereign being. He does as he pleases. He wills what he wills when no counselor can send to man. And sometimes we may not agree or like what he wills. Sometimes we'll think it's terrible, that nothing could be worse. But even during these times, we have to do what these men exemplified in their lives. We have to hold our peace, submit to God's will and to his goodness, and worship the Lord. The storm will rage. The winds will blow and tear down. But through it all, God will hold us tight in his everlasting arms, not allowing the bad to overcome the good. The good comes if we wait for it with hopeful expectancy. It comes if we refuse to let the carnal man rule the day. These free men learn firsthand that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, and we can never allow ourselves to forget that, because we will have dark nights full of weeping, but we'll have far more bright mornings full of joy and laughter. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us to fend for ourselves during those bad, hard trials that we have to endure in this life, but that you hold our hand all the way through, that you lead us and guide us even through the valley of the shadow of death. And we thank you that you don't leave us in the valley, but that you lead us all the way through, you lead us out of it, and then you lead us up to the top of the mountain. Lord, we thank you that just like Aaron, we'll be able to hold our peace, that we'll be able to put our trust in you, and Lord, we thank you that we're going to hold on to our peace no matter what, that we're not going to allow the enemy to ever steal it from us. And we thank you that you give us the strength to do so. And just like Eli, Lord, we thank you that we're free to submit to your will. We thank you that all things work together for our good. Lord, we know that we're called according to your purpose. And Lord, we thank you that you set apart good for us in our life. We thank you that you willed good for us. And Lord, we claim that promise today in faith. And Lord, just like Job, we thank you that we're free to worship you at all times, no matter what the circumstances of our life may be. And Lord, today we worship you, we praise you, we thank you, we glorify your name, we lift up your name. And Lord, we exalt you. We thank you that you are a good God, and because of that, we know that there is good on the way, that the best is yet to come. We know that weeping may have to endure for a night. We know that there's trials that we're going to have to go through in this earth. But Lord, we thank you that joy comes in the morning. We thank you for the joy, the rejoicing, the laughter that we have coming up in our life. And Lord, we thank you for all the blessings, all the prosperity, all the unbounded joy that is our portion. And Lord, today we claim that in faith, and we thank you for it. We give you all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want to respond rightly to the hard times of life, and have Jesus as a part of your life today. All you need to do is to invite Jesus into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. You then need to repent of your sins and ask for his forgiveness. Then you trust that you've been forgiven and you ask for his free gift of eternal life. Now, if you prayed this from a sincere heart and you truly meant it, then you are now a part of the family of God. Welcome to God's family. 
We want to thank everybody for listening today. We appreciate you taking out your time to spend with us. If you'd like to give us feedback and tell us how much you appreciate this show, you can contact us at kingswordbiblestudy at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about this program and this ministry, you can visit kingswordbible.com. We appreciate also if you write a review from wherever you're listening to this podcast from, and if you follow and subscribe so that more people can hear the King's Word for themselves. God bless you. We want you to know that we love you all, and we will see you next week as we continue to study the King's Word together.